What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to I Came With Fire podcast. Tonight, we are here with The Cognitive Marine, as you can find him on his social media. Julian, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I think everybody's going to really enjoy this episode because we are talking about some comparisons between Rome and the United States, which is a pretty, pretty common thing to talk about, especially in times something goes wrong in the USA. Anybody, Everybody loves to bring up how it's the fall of the West, like the fall of Rome and all this stuff. But anyway, Julian, nice, nice to have you on here, man. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to everybody? Yeah. Hey, I really appreciate you having me on. Um, I'm a uh, Marine Lieutenant Colonel, active duty, and uh, serving right now out in uh, the Far East. And um, my, my career has, you know, been an interesting one, like I think a lot of active duty personnel over the last uh, two decades have been. But uh, having served over 20 years, uh, I've done the standard uh, Iraq, uh, Middle East, and uh, global hotspot deployments. Um, all of that has kind of given me a unique perspective as I reckon with all the experiences that we've had uh, shared and otherwise uh, individual kind of uh, experiences. Um, and that's really what drew, drew me to uh, starting the platform that I did on Instagram, uh, mostly because um, I, I found very quickly that uh, as is uh, no surprise to all, you, all of your listeners, and most of the Marines uh, that I spoke to, uh, you know, I maybe have their attention for 15, 20, 30 minutes. And then uh, very quickly, they would be on their social media for hours and be for far sure. more engaged. And uh, so that's why I started the platform. And it's really grown uh, since then. And um, kind of totally unexpected uh, ways and a lot of it has to do with the feedback that I get from the people that I, I uh, engage with. And um, a lot of people have uh, very strong opinions, which is great. Mm -hmm. And that has really shaped the kind of things I put out there, which is, I think, ultimately why we're talking here. Definitely. Yeah. I, um, when I started this podcast, one of the things that I had planned on talking about eventually was talking about Rome in the United States. And when I saw that post you made a while back when I hit you up, I was like, here we go. Somebody that I can have a conversation with and, and jump on and do this. Yeah. And for everybody who's been listening to us, as you can see again, Zach, unfortunately can't be here tonight to jump in on this conversation. He's pretty bummed out, but, um, he'll be back next time. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm really excited to, to have this conversation with you because you seem really well informed on the subject and, and it seems like you have a passion for it as well, which is something that I have too, is a, is a passion for history. Yeah, absolutely. Um, really for me, the, the issue of Rome and, uh, or Pax Romana as it's mm -hmm. kind of, uh, typically known is, um, you, you know, you, you're right. There's a lot of comparisons made between Pax Americana or the American Empire and the Roman Empire. Uh, and I would I would offer to you that um, they are certainly both empires and they have done empire like things. And what is really captivated me towards uh, the Roman Empire, which is why uh, you see it every every once in a while, is because. I see literally see events taking place that I have read in Roman history mm -hmm. and they are, although on a different continent, um, uh, produced by different, uh, language speakers, 
Mm -hmm. uh, they are in effect the same leaders, the same situations. And um, Gerald Mattis has a, a quote he used to tell us often. I was a young second lieutenant in his division. And uh, he would often visit with uh, the most junior of officers. And um, wow. he would tell us, uh, if you're looking for a new idea, read an old book. And I like um, that. it stuck with me as a, as a young officer. And uh, from the very earliest days, he was a big fan of uh, Stephen Pressfield, a guy, mm -hmm. uh, an author who I've come to know uh, personally and uh, who is a, a former Marine, by the way. Um, but Stephen has uh, got, you know, he's written Gates of Fire amongst other books and is a really phenomenal historian when it comes to the Roman Empire as well. And a lot of that kind of uh, burned a bit of a fire in me about uh, the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. I, I think it's kind of funny because I mean, you're on social media through Instagram, but right now there's kind of a trend going around where uh, women are asking their husbands or boyfriends, fiancés, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? And it seems to be that every guy you know, has the same answers like, oh, once or twice a week or a couple times a month or you know, these long drawn out answers about why they think about the Roman Empire. So I think that's kind of funny. It seems to be a, a thing that all of us think about very often. But to go back to what you were saying, the parallels are, are kind of uncanny sometimes when you don't get too bogged down in the minutiae, right? Because there's going to be differences. But let's consider up front that the, the Roman Empire was founded by dispossessed peoples from another empire, right? Which is yep. very much the same story for the Americans. We were, you know, this group coming over from Europe, you know, from fleeing you know, religious oppression, come to the United States or what would become the United States and starting a new country. And then we were both yoked under the reign of kings before throwing off those oppressive kings. And, you know, republics were established. And our founding fathers, you know, astounded, uh, founded our republic literally on the backs of what the Romans did, right? And yeah. we had this deep, deep hatred for monarchy and autocracy. You know, so there's up front just some very, very large comparisons. And you can keep going, right? And, and there's some markers throughout our um, progression as empires that seem to line up really, really well. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think if you, uh, the, the humble beginnings that uh, Rome uh, started under mm -hmm. um, and where it's kind of, uh, you know, what, whether you argue the, uh, the five uh, great emperors were the, the mm -hmm. peak, but I, I would offer to you that Rome had a vision uh, towards the, the next generation and mm -hmm. viewed their empire is multi-generational, but not only that, but viewed themselves as uh, as key uh, benchmarks in the in the in the history of human civilization, that's why mm -hmm. they built things that would last thousands of years. Um, and there's and, and I'll give you a, an interesting parallel that uh, I think is um, highly relevant to today. Um, mm -hmm. If you I don't know if you ever walked through the Roman Forum, but uh, it, I have not, unfortunately. Yeah, so. I have, and it's um, anyone who goes to Rome. That's about the only place, uh, amongst other, you know, great, ama there's amazing places to see. But the Roman Forum obviously is is should be at the top of your 
Marcus Aurelius bucket list. But uh, the Roman Forum uh, is amazing because it was clearly built for people a thousand years from now to understand. And uh, if you were to look at a society, you know, generationally, multi-generations into the future, and you were to look back at maybe the one great creation, what would you pull from that? And uh, I think the Roman Forum encapsulates that perfectly. You got the government, you've got Mm -hmm. the area of the people, you've got their spirituality, all centered in this like uh, central zone uh, known as the Roman Forum. And that's not by accident. Uh, I, I, at least I don't believe, and I think the literature tells us, uh, supports that as well. Mm-hmm. In many of the same ways, uh, if you go to Washington, D.C., you see the, the intersectionality of all of that. Uh, you have the government, you have plazas for the people, and then you got the uh, spirituality piece where you see a lot of references to God, a lot of references mm-hmm. to uh, religious icons and symbols. Uh, And that's not by accident. And I think, you know, the U.S. is also trying to project a thousand years into the future. You know, if we're going to build something, let's make sure it lasts. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I think that's the mark of all of these past great civilizations. You can say, you know, not even just the Romans, the Greeks, uh, the Egyptians, obviously, with pyramids. Those are those were not meant to be gone in a couple hundred years. You know, that's right. Um, so they leave their mark because they do think progressively out in the future. I really like that you said that, and I like that you brought up how there is a focus on, or at least a centralization on religion and something that gives people purpose outside of themselves. Um, and I think that's something that we could talk about as well later in the conversation about the disappearance of that as well, when you get more towards the decline of the Roman empire and some of the things that you could say are the declination of the United States, um, or definitely things that are on the downward slope is kind of a loss on those, those religious tenets or those tenets that provide purpose, whatever you want to call them, right? Because you don't need to be religious to have good principles, but, um, you know, bird's eye view, right? Continuing with these, these comparisons, you know, Rome had um, you know, some global conflicts that it was involved in that generated wealth and it made their economy boom. And then same thing with the United States, you know, the global wars that we have been involved in, you know, uh, after the conclusion of World War II, the United States became the global hegemon. We had you know, a common enemy for a long time with the USSR, but eventually that went away. Um, and we have, you know, this this mass uh, influx of wealth into our economy, which kind of generated this um, disparity between what now we could say are these American oligarchs that do really run our country, and then a lot of poverty and civil unrest. And the same thing happened in Rome as well. And then you you can say further, when you have civil unrest and poverty, you have a need for populist views to come about and generate change. And you can see that with the Gracchi brothers, Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus in, in ancient Rome, and then again yeah. with somebody like JFK, and then the comparisons there are both of the uh, the Gracchus brothers were murdered, and so is JFK. And then you now yeah. kind of have another populist leader, so, somewhat right in, in Donald Trump. At least he rallies from some of those those populist views of um, you know giving back to the people, or taking uh, and lifting up the middle class. But um, we've very much fallen into those oligarchical traps that the Romans did. And then eventually they became an autocracy. I mean, do you, do you kind of see 
um, the United States heading down that road into autocracy? Um, I, I don't know if, um, you know, if the United States is headed down into a path of uh, autocracy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think, if I may, just start at some of the key points you just brought up, I think are extremely Please. relevant. So uh, Rome fights wars of empire. Warm, uh, Rome fights wars of uh, economy. Rome fights wars that are defensive in nature. They have no clear, definitive victor or loser. And so Rome does all these things. And what's interesting is that um, you know, Rome, uh, it isn't until later into the Roman Empire that Rome has that professional standing army that we've come to kind of known as the centurion and the, and, um, um, the legion. Uh, but mm-hmm. the reality is, is that Rome for many years just has an army that uh, is only created for the, the needs and then dissipates back into the, uh, into the either farmer or uh, subservience. There's a lot of slaves. And so it matches kind of well with the early start of the U.S. kind of military. That's right. And it isn't until we really get into the early days of uh, World War One or just prior Mm -hmm. to World War One that we come to realize that having a large standing army is not just a requirement, but is an absolute necessary, necessary, uh, necessary to our survival. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. And. Um, Rome experiences the exact same kind of convolutions and it has a series of dirty wars along its borders in Germanica as we you know kind of popularly understand with Hannibal mm-hmm. um, but it also has these very indisputed wars in the Middle East uh, that, that have no clear victors that um, from the outsets are just shaping actions and I, I would offer to you that um, during these very tumultuous periods, uh, when some of these wars were not clearly defined, let, let's just take uh, Germanica and its uh, and, and Rome's wars against Hannibal. Okay. Um, the reality is that many of the legions came back. Like they, there was famously one was completely defeated and its standard was captured. Mm-hmm. Um, but not only that, but uh, Rome feels like this pressure of man: is this the end? Like we've mm-hmm. we've had these strings of victories and and now we're being defeated by an insurgent uh, and and in Hannibal. What's very interesting is that that happens before the five great emperors, as it's known, mm-hmm. and really is like um, it, it, as you can see, the mood in in Rome uh, specifically is just uh, uh, it's it's down, it's it's weakened. Uh, you're having slave revolts. You're having people take advantage of the situation on the edges of the empire, uh, literally and figuratively. And yet no one knows, no one realizes that the five great emperors are coming uh, to really mm-hmm. return Rome to this, like, to its kind of rightful place at the top of the food chain. And, and, and in the same ways, you're asking the kind of similar question. We've just had this disastrous exit out of um, Afghanistan. Um, we are seeing economic um, turmoil. Uh, we are seeing uh, wars on the horizon that none of us feel very confident about, and which leads to a lot of the kind of things I post. What is 
I think most profound during all of that to kind of get to your Trump Trump question, whether this is a Trumpian kind of era we're about to enter in, or this is something else. And that's why I focus on uh, Marcus Aurelius often. You know, what's interesting about Marcus was that he was an emperor in waiting uh, since literally his birth. Um, all knew that he was going to be emperor and um, his father-in-law uh, or his caretaker, excuse me, his uh, name ex escapes me, um, is basically sitting in the emperor's seat waiting for Marcus Aurelius to come to power and, and be ready. He's too young and it's wide acknowledgement that he would be overthrown if he was too young and inexperienced. And so they're waiting for him to uh, kind of come of age. Well, he suspects it's gonna happen in his 20s, early 20s. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that uh, Marcus Aurelius doesn't become emperor of Rome and, and it's kind of uh, entirety until he is well into his 40s, mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of well-aged in that era. era. Uh, you're, to, to make it into your 40s is having survived the plagues, having survived getting robbed on the side of the street hundreds of times. Right. Uh, he literally fights for your life uh, day in and day out. Mm -hmm. So uh, what's amazing is that this transfer of power occurs to Marcus, and Marcus is kind of the um, the the guy who um, who takes Rome through the turmoil at the end of uh, Hannibal's kind of reign there, and the defeat of uh, Germanica and kind of the stabilization of Rome. What's interesting is that Rome enters a period of greatness because it's not fighting these wars for its survival, which I think is the most important thing here, is that. Um, for us in the future, do we feel as if we are about to enter an era for the fight of our survival? Or can we find a period of peace so Rome can invest or the United States can invest in all these things that we have come to, 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 to appreciate but really love? And that mm -hmm. is what like Rome occurs, what, what occurs in Rome after uh, Marcus Aurelius comes to power is that there, there are wars on the edges of the empire. Uh, and there are at times wars where there are, um, you, one could argue that Marcus Aurelius was at war his entire life, but mm -hmm. there were no wars for Rome's identity or survival that occurred mm -hmm. during his uh, rule. There's these uh, kind of, um, small wars, if, if one could argue. And, and there were some big ones in there, but there was, generally speaking, they were not for all the marbles. They, were, they, they mm -hmm. were not for Rome's survival. And I think this is the question that we must ask ourselves here, is that are we gonna, are we gonna enter into a period where everything is on the table? Um, and I think this is where the comparisons for the Rome end. I think the, the, um, the situation we're facing with China is in fact for all the marbles. Mm -hmm. And, and I think China um, intensely understands that this is that fight that has been kind of slow brewing. Um, and this is, and, and this is where the comparisons I think with, uh, with Rome kind of end here. Mm -hmm. 
you know, Rome famously split into two different empires. Um, one that later became the, you know, Byzantine and, um, mm-hmm. you know, headquartered out of, um, <clears throat> that's really survived for almost another thousand years and out of uh, Constantinople. Right. But the reality is, is that, you know, I don't see the United States splitting into two different empires and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, breaking apart. But I, I do believe that who sits at the top of the mantle here, uh, whether China knocks the United States off, which obviously I'm against, or whether the United States is able to reassert itself as the dominant um, kind of hegemon in the world. I, you know, what's interesting in this, uh, and I apologize for continuing this, this line of thought here, but. No, don't apologize at all. What's interesting is that um, Rome, uh, during these period of five great emperors, uh, Rome has a number of things that takes off. One is like tourism. Uh, the other is arts and writing and science. And like they're able to invest in all of these things because of the relative peace. Mm-hmm. But wh- one of the great things that comes out of this during this period is tourism a form of tourism, and actually it's a pretty advanced form of tourism, by the way, where Roman citizens are traveling to what was, uh, to Greece, to visit this, uh, this Spartan people, uh, and visit, visiting kind of what is, we all understand to be is Sparta. And actually we have the Roman tourists to thank for, uh, kind of rewriting about Sparta and about this great people. And the Romans really fell in love with Spartans and uh, really fell in love with these people. And it was a, it was a frequent tourist destination for uh, visitors to come and see a people that had clearly chosen not to advance and mm-hmm. chosen uh, to um, be a, a warlike tribe. And, um, the, the reality is, is that 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 like experience for a lot of its Roman citizens set a high bar for what the government should be able to do and what the legion should be capable of doing. And I think in many ways, um, when we're facing this, and I believe a, a, a uh, competition for, for, for empire dominance here in the, in the next few years, I think that question resonates with uh with the american populace is who does the american people look towards as kind of the benchmark standard bearers and who does what does the american people ask of its military which is the greatest that has ever existed and what does it ask of its government which is one could argue uh the most accomplished democratic government in the history of uh, the western world Mm -hmm. and i i think you know, Roman citizens ask these same questions of its um, government, um, and I think Americans should be asking the same question of, of us. I think you bring up some really great points, uh, particularly the issues where you're talking about um, their populist issues having the United States having to face some of its own identity crises that you're talking about that. Um, Marcus Aurelius and the Rome under him weren't really facing. The United States has to face those things. Um, and we do have that, that, you know, that enemy at the gate in China, like you said, where it is for all the marbles. 
and to kind of turn around, turn the ship around, I think that again, you know, those issues have to be faced with what um, the American citizen, the average American citizen, the middle class specifically have, have to face. And I think it's interesting that you bring up um, Roman tourism. I had not ever heard of that before. And I think it's interesting that they go to a place like Sparta, which we're all familiar with, um, you know, thanks to the graphic novel turned movie. Um, but those are almost old school, old world ideals returning to seeing how great seeing how um, you know, different sets of principles can can bring about prosperity. And I do see a little bit, um, at least on social media, a turn towards you know the, the getting back to Western values and getting back to things that the things that we were doing before that made us who we are and made us great. You know those those values about you know, family and purpose and then trying to rein in some of the power that has gotten away from the regular American citizen the same way uh, you know the, that power eventually got away from the Roman citizen and then again you know the what it meant to be a citizen in Rome is different than what it meant means to be a citizen in the United States and one of the parallels I've always found to be really interesting about Rome and the United States is that at their advents both the Romans and the United States were very particular about who they let vote. Um, and I'm definitely not advocating for um, taking away the vote from anybody, but it does seem like the more egalitarian a society becomes, the more it starts heading down paths where all is allowed, all is permissible. And you, know, you start to see these de degradations of values and, and principles that kind of upheld that society that these values were built on top of. Um, so I think for us to get to that point where we can kind of have our tourism in Sparta moment is going to have to be where the United States kind of forces itself to, A, face some of the issues that we have with the declining of our society, the centralization of power, uh, excuse me, wealth and power and, and oligarchs, essentially, um, and then finding a common goal and that common enemy to, to face. Because um, let's face it, and just this is the way it is, I think it's the hard truth of, of the world and, and people in general, is you having a common enemy is, is never going to not be a thing, and it's always going to be a great unifier. And, you know, I'm, I'm not on here advocating for, for war. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that having a common goal is something that is going to bring people together to allow us to fix some of these issues. And it doesn't seem to um, you know, go well when we, we fall apart that way without a goal. Yeah. Um, I, I think you're, you know, as you were uh, talking, um, two things popped up in my head that I think are highly relevant here. One is that uh, Rome was not uh, destroyed from without. It was destroyed mm -hmm. from within. And uh, one could argue that uh, Commodus, um, as soon as, uh, you know, uh, Marcus's son, Commodus, uh, just creates this, um, this highly destructive path that is, um, kind of survives, uh, through the era. And I, I, I would tell you that, um, the downfall of the United States because of our strong military is going to be from within. And I think you're, you're seeing early indicators that uh, whether it's uh, manipulation through social media, um, whether it's a turn and you, you see a lot of uh, people within the United States turn to the things that we believe could save us. Right. Right. And that is a natural tendency when we are running out of 
uh, when, when you're running out of good options at hand, you tend to turn to the things that you believe can bring a, a, a strong correction, right? Right. So I'll give you an example. Um, you know, I'll, I'll oversimplify it. If you're hungry, a lot of people will go to a drive through because we're trying to kill the problem right now. No one like contemplates, hey, I should probably go to the grocery store because it just takes too long and mm-hmm. it's just too hard. And I'm just, I'm so hungry that I can't even like think beyond the drive through. Um, Rome saw the same kind of uh, issues that we're seeing today. And mm-hmm. the natural tendency for people to, um, whether it is to, uh, uh, kill your way out of a problem, um, whether it is to buy your way out of a problem. Um, I, I don't, you know, that, that's really a question that we will all ask ourselves. What's interesting about Rome is that Rome had a wide disparity of religions because it was, you know, this, this, this amazing empire. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, Rome was fairly tolerant of basically every religion obviously christians were not well tolerated uh famously so so sure but but the reality is is that romans worshiped all these gods and there was all these it was a wash with religions uh the issue with christianity is that obviously it it claimed to be the one sole religion uh which put itself at odds with uh, caesar but the 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 other kind of reality here is that um, Rome tended to overreact to problems. And so, and it reacted, when it did react to problems, it reacted far too late. Uh, famously, uh, communists watched Rome effectively burn uh, to the ground um, because of the plague. Uh, there was the slave revolt. Famously, uh, communists uh, was late to react to the famine. Um, that, that plagued Rome and uh, really just was kind of asleep at the wheel. And mm-hmm. this is, sounds you know, familiar. As, as we look at the United States and we are now waking up to a reality where I saw a statistic where um, if you earned the max income possible um, since the birth of Christ, you would there would and you and you you lived the entire time to today and you were able to save every single penny you have ever earned it would only get you about uh 3.8 billion dollars would wouldn't even put you in the top 100 richest people on the planet wow um and the reality is is that we are um in a new era of um of power, what it means to be powerful. We're in, we're in a new era of what it means to be wealthy. And we're in a new era of what it means to be influential. And I think that um, the, these are complex issues that Rome similarly dealt with at, at the uh, at the kind of um, uh, at the diff- different phases. But very rarely in Rome did all these converge into kind of one moment. And I would tell you that um, uh, this is this is the challenge that the United States is facing: is that it is we, we're having a convergence of all of these issues 
into kind of one one kind of era. And I saw it as a Marine uh, commander who has led Marines, uh, both in the battle and uh, um, stateside as a battalion commander. You know, I have seen uh, the breadth and scope of issues that are all converging into kind of one moment. And what I would offer as, as um, well, I got to go to uh, Jordan. I don't know if you've ever been there before. I have not. Um, there's a city called um, uh, Jarash, and mm-hmm. it's in um, northern uh, Jordan. And there's the, the actual Roman name of the city is called Garasa. And it is probably the world's most intact Roman city that um, is most rarely visited. Mm-hmm. This is in the middle of effectively nowhere, mm-hmm. and it's hard to get to. Um, and it, I, I basically have walked through that town at least 10 times. It's a, it's a massive city, Roman city that's abandoned. And you can have the city to yourself effectively. If you go early in the morning, you're the only person there. I guarantee you. It's incredible. Um, and I've walked this city multiple times, uh, over the last 20 years, I've been able to go to Jordan many times, but anyways, um, there's this, um, um, place in the middle of the city where it's literally a fountain that was built 2000 years ago. And this mm-hmm. fountain, um, is you could see the huge bowl that the water was spraying up out of and you, and we're in the middle of a desert and it's always been a desert and the Romans are like creating water fountains in the middle of nowhere. What's interesting is that trash or Garasa is the Roman name, was not captured. It was abandoned by the Romans. Wow. And you look at the city, and I'm not saying you can move in today, but you could certainly see a future where the roads, the Roman roads are still there, and they mm-hmm. literally lead the Rome. And you think to yourself, like, the Romans abandoned the city. Like, what? What internal Why? strife could have like befallen that they would uh, like fall back from these positions? Mm-hmm. And I think that is that is a um, that is a symptom of a disease, of an internal rot, where mm-hmm. all of a sudden you lose your kind of uh, the fear of um, being overrun or the fear of of your 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 um, lines connecting all the way back to Rome. And then you start falling back to better, more, which you believe to be better and more defensible positions. But in fact, that you are actually causing the very downfall you are trying to prevent. That literally, so, what made Rome so great was that it was out on the edge of the empire. Mm-hmm. And what made makes America so great is that we are, again, at the edge of the empire and our fears are the only thing that can make us fall back. Right. It's so interesting the way you described it. The first thing my brain went to was thinking about the body's reaction to going into shock. Because what's the first thing that happens when your body goes into shock? It pulls all that blood in your chest. It moves away from the extremities to try and save itself, right? 
and it, that's, right. that's exactly what you're talking about is the Roman Empire going into shock and pulling all the blood right into Rome, thinking it's better positions. And it's just a natural reaction. I think it's interesting. That's what came into my mind. It sounds like the body's reaction to shock. Um, you know, but what you're talking about, too, is like reacting without enough time reacting too late to things. Um, there's a lot of there are a lot of things that we face in the United States that almost seem too late to me anyway. I mean, is that kind of how you look at it? Do you feel that we've reached that point, the point of no return? Or do you feel like we can, like I said before, turn the ship around? You know, um, I'm a big fan of uh, meditations and I'm sure you've mm -hmm. read it. I have. Uh, and um, Marcus Aurelius has this great quote. He says, um, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he effectively says that um, whenever you hit a roadblock or you you are running into a problem mm -hmm. you know, the problem becomes the way mm -hmm. and we tend to um and, and 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 i think to answer your question about reacting late or not reacting um energetically enough well whatever the scenario may be i i tend to believe that um what happens during these moments of strife or pressure, whatever it may be, that we tend to focus or, or be or, or be um, or focus on all the periphery, where mm -hmm. all the other ancillary problems start showing up, and it quickly becomes overwhelming, mm -hmm. and we tend to uh, start solving the easiest of the problems in hopes of getting at the, the, the harder one. And we tend to mm -hmm. overlook the harder ones because they're too hard to solve. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> I would I would offer to you that, um, you know what what made uh, kind of Marcus Aurelius so great is that uh, in meditations he he left us with meditations kind of inadvertently. It was his private diary that he wanted to uh, kind of. It was no it was not written for anybody but for him, which is mm -hmm. really remarkable fact it is like yeah. how well how well thought out this thing was and he wrote it in greek mm -hmm. <clears throat> and he wrote it in greek which was like the philosopher language so it was like it's like holy cow this guy's like writing to himself in the ph philosopher language because it's the better language to deliver philosophy to yourself mm -hmm. which is uh really really remarkable but um one of the things i, I like about marcus Aurelius is that um, his very stoic approach to all of the issues, which is you know how we sense how we got stoicism, obviously. But uh, I would almost offer to you that if we have a stoic approach to our problems, as complex as they may be, and as difficult and as challenging as they are, I think we would very very quickly find that uh, not only are most problems human made. But mm -hmm. only these problems are that only humans can solve. Mm -hmm. And many of them are self-induced. I would um, to, to kind of switch gears here on you uh, and yeah. uh, kind of pull this. Uh, so re over the last uh, few days, I've been hammering Transcom. Uh, Transcom, is yeah. uh, for the listeners who don't know, is one of the kind of um, uh, global combatant commands. And uh, they don't have a territory like CENTCOM or SOUTHCOM or Indo-PACOM. But um, 
they're a functional command, as we call it, and their thing is transportation. And, um, you know, as you look at uh, the kind of uh, the powers that be, we have a number of laws that are preventing us from uh, exercising what I believe is to be uh, moving at the forward edge of the empire. We tend to have this fear, and so it's like pulling us back. Kind of, we use that that same mm-hmm. thing here. Um, and my my argument, my position is that we should be at the forward edge of the empire. We should be shaping. And we should be enabled to shape at the forward edge of the empire. And the best way we can do this is through um, having access to local transportation and bringing our own with our own ship drivers and our own equipment is not only inherently expensive, but it just kind of boggles the mind. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things about Roman roads that I found um, so amazing, having walked many of these Roman roads was that they were clearly identifiable as like a Roman road. One, you, 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 you knew no question that this was a Roman road. Mm-hmm. Two, the other remarkable thing is that they were w- with us. But the most amazing, uh, they're with us today, but the most amazing thing about Roman roads is that they were all built with materials locally. Mm-hmm. So the Romans didn't try to like haul a brick from a kiln in southern Italy all the way to Afghanistan. Uh, now they like used the materials and they bent the materials around them to their will and to great success. Um, in many ways, I, I think that's what Transcom is really supposed to do at the edge of the empire for us mm-hmm. is allow us to bend and shape the things that are at our disposal to our will to enable us. Right. And if it doesn't do that, at the edge of the empire, I got to ask, what is the point of having that organization? Mm-hmm. If it's not that, then what? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and are we truly serious that we're going to haul a large container ship to the edge of the empire and expect it to do what we need? And I, I think that's a, that's a fool's errand. I think as a as an enterprise as great and powerful as Transcom, you know, it needs to act as kind of Rome. You know, it mm-hmm. is enabling by not uh, not putting the onerous uh, kind of restrictions of uh, the most four deployed forces. Mm-hmm. I think that's where you know we we start to change the game if we if we do this. The Chinese are doing the exact same thing, by the way. They have mm-hmm. fleets of roll-on, roll-off ships, or as they call them, row-row ships, that uh, are literally built to s- s- military standards. I'll give you a great example. Uh, there's a whole bunch of row-row ships that are permanently stationed that service the Taiwan Strait mm-hmm. um, and between major cities. And these row-row ships were designed to carry tanks. Um, the way the, the weight and the reinforcement on the floors to how wide the ramps are and how strong the ramps are were all designed to carry tanks. And they mm-hmm. built that with the intention at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Chinese military has access to thousands of these or hundreds of these row row ships and to thousands more civilian ships. Mm-hmm. And it's a very smart entrepreneurial way of um, having dual use capability. 
and I think that's like effectively, you know, what uh, and wrote and um, Transcom's Title Ten a position as not only as the transportation integrator for the U.S. military, but a signer of priority. Um, whether it gets aircraft or ships or slow moving aircraft or fast moving aircraft or large ships or large aircraft, mm-hmm. it uh, it's also the advocate to to Congress on what needs to happen in order to enable this. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, my, you know, my, my love with uh, Rome is, um, is kind of uh, uh, multi-dimensional here. I would argue uh, one of the things that Romans tended to uh, gravitate towards with was amazingly, just like we're gravitating toward Roman history the Romans did the exact same thing with Greek history. The mm-hmm. Romans loved Greek mythology. They loved Greek history. They loved everything about Greece, just like we are. And it's literally the same kind of scenario where we're like having this love affair with Marcus Aurelius and Roman emperors and the legion. Yeah. You, you see like the Roman salute and the standard, the eagle, mm-hmm. we've absorbed a lot of these things into our our society. So when the, the Romans did the exact same thing with the Greeks, and one of the things that the Romans pulled from the Greeks was this thing known as, I don't know if you're aware, but it's, we, we understand it as the Thucydides trap. Mm-hmm. Yep. I don't know if you're we talked well about aware. it on this podcast before. Yeah. So, um, are we in a Thucydides trap here and with, with China? seems like it. And I, I would argue that, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a case to be made here for mm-hmm. that. And there's, there's stark parallels here with <laughs> the Roman interpretation of the Thucydides trap. One, mm-hmm. you have a, a naval, you have a land empire uh, in China fighting what effectively is a, both a land and sea empire. And I would argue the war has kind of begun. We're in a, we're in phase mm-hmm. one. We're really oh, yeah. shaping the, the campaign. And the Greeks um, really kind of viewed the threats. Um, and 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 the thing is, is that they, they, they viewed the threats in a in a kind of state where everything's on the table. It's for all the marbles. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting about the 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 uh, Thucydides trap and the fight uh, that the, that the Greeks really kind of embarked upon was you had two different empires that both played to their strengths but mm-hmm. also tried to fight to their weaknesses, which is really kind of important mm-hmm. distinction here. And I would argue that the United States is a naval empire. Mm-hmm. That's what I would argue. Recent history would tell you that the United States is a land empire, but I believe we are a um, an empire at sea. And where you stand on that will basically dictate the options that you have. And I would argue that there's no way, not impossible. But there's no way that the United States invades China. There's nothing there for us. Mm-hmm. Anyone who says different is kind of losing their mind. 
or hasn't looked at the situation clearly. I think this is a naval fight. Mm -hmm. And I I would say that Greece viewed the same thing, was that their survival was from their Navy. Mm -hmm. But what was interesting is that they chose to fight via land and play to their weakness. And this really caused a series of dramatic events for them. Uh, Same thing with Sparta. Um, Sparta was a land empire. And the moment they started masquerading as a naval empire, they found themselves in dire straits. Mm -hmm. I I do find it interesting when you started talking about this, I uh, just to keep with the Rome and U.S. comparison, I almost thought you were going to talk about Rome deciding to build a navy to go to war with Carthage and just how much of the failure that they they met in doing that. And they did it over and over and over again until eventually, as you know, you know, Rome over overtook Carthage. And it's it's almost where there's a swap here where you know the Chinese have caught up with our navy by building ships and they're getting better at some of these things and they're they're adapting to their environment and almost port well not almost they are forcing the United States to adapt, almost choosing the battlefield, so to speak, which is not good. We should be dictating those terms. But um, playing to the weaknesses, you know, the Romans overcame that. And then eventually Mara Nostrum, right? Our sea, the Mediterranean was the Roman sea. And they became that 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 naval power. Um, And so I just find it really interesting because there is a, a stark example of a country facing its its weakness and doing it over and over again until it becomes successful, you know? And so you could take that in two veins. You could take that as in the Chinese understanding its geography and needing to have a strong Navy, recognizing that the United States is the predominant naval power. And you can say, well, with the issues you bring up with transcom, the Navy has these weaknesses and Marine Corps in turn that they have to and must overcome. And this is this is something we've talked about here is when it when and if this happens, if we never get off the the highway of the the, uh, Thucydides trap is the Navy and the Air Force are going to be the most important players here. Um, And, you know, and obviously in turn, the Marine Corps, when I say the Navy, Um, because there is not going to be an invasion of China, in my opinion. I don't see the I don't see how that is profitable. So. you know, to me, when you talk about that, you, you hit on a lot of the points that we discuss very often. And it's good that you use your platform to advocate for some of those changes because they could be, as you said, in that fight for all the marbles. It is the the, the, the pivotal piece, you know, going towards checkmate one way or the other. Yeah, I, um, I couldn't agree more. I think the one, one of the other challenges that, uh, you know, as we're going through this identity crisis where we effectively have a U.S. Navy that has never shot around in anger uh, and never has not engaged in a gunfight, in, in, a, in a literal gunfight since uh, you, you, could, you could scrape away maybe a little skirmish here in Vietnam. But, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not in a, in a little gunfight until the, the, the Korean War or in reality is the World War II. Yeah. But I think what's interesting is that uh, President Teddy Roosevelt, he was the secretary, he was the assistant secretary of the Navy before he became president. Mm -hmm. And um, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, 
understood that the U.S. was a naval power and used the Navy uh, to, to the fullest extent possible and built a great Navy and built a capable Navy that was able to influence things and change things. But he was also careful not to engage in a, you know, kind of a land war in Asia. Mm-hmm. You know, he was, right. he was careful about what the, what the, uh, um, what the limits of American power was. And because we had such a powerful Navy, we were able to reduce the size of the land forces. So we, we basically became this elephant, or excuse me, this, this whale uh, during mm-hmm. the era of President Roosevelt. And when we were surrounded by uh, a bunch of elephants and the elephants being these large uh, land powers. Mm-hmm. And what America was able to achieve during the um, presidency of um, Teddy Roosevelt was a large investment into a domestic audience. We were able to shape the the situation overseas to our benefit. Mm-hmm. And, and there's like all kinds of examples. I'm not going to go into them all, but there's a great one. Um, and uh, Lib- and what what is now known as modern day Libya, where an American uh, socialite, uh, a guy, he gets kidnapped. And uh, there's actually a movie that was made about this called The Wind and the Lion um, mm. with Sean Connery, by the way, as, uh, mm. as, the, um, as the guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but The Wind and the Lion is a great movie. Um, but a- anyways, uh, Teddy Roosevelt fam- famously um, used the Navy to basically park offshore, send some maritime forces in, and help pressure... Um, the uh, it was called the Paradiculous Affair, but used the used the uh, military to to basically extract the the rescue and the recovery of this American. But you know, it's really a, a different philosophy. If you were to travel to most military bases today, I don't think you you believe one second that we are a a, a sea power. I think you're going to mm-hmm. walk away believing that we're this massive land power. Mm-hmm. And so now it becomes inherently difficult to deliver that power overseas. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's only getting more expensive and more difficult as the Navy is literally getting smaller before our eyes. Mm-hmm. So I, I think as we, you know, you, you bring up a great analogy with Carthage. Um, you know, I, I don't know if the parallels continue because I don't know if we get multiple chances in China. I think we get one yeah. if we're lucky. Mm-hmm. And, and I think personally that by having a strong Navy, we avoid the catastrophic engagement that would kind of make it for all the marbles. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Russians um, um, had famously had an engagement with the uh, Japanese uh, really at the turn of the century in the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. It was a huge naval battle. Mm-hmm. And the Russians um, did not understand the foe they were fighting in, in the Japanese Imperial Navy. Mm-hmm. And when they had this engagement, it literally wiped their entire Asiatic fleet clean. Yeah. And it sunk all of their capital ships. Uh, and it basically was the catastrophic fight that they were hoping to win, um, and but they should have avoided. 
Mm-hmm. And, and I think in many of the same ways, if we have a strong Navy um, that is highly mobile, um, moving at kind of um, uh, to crisis, uh, we are we are going to be able to avoid the catastrophic fight that mm-hmm. um, that would be for all the marbles, mm-hmm. and that's my fear is that um, not not that any of this keeps me up at night because mm-hmm. I have uh, great faith in our capabilities, but my my concern is that uh, we walk into a scenario where we have to aggregate our naval forces and our amphibious forces mm-hmm. for a large all the marbles fight. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we haven't had a chance to rehearse this. We we don't know the, the scenario until it's presented upon us. Mm-hmm. And we don't know the depth of the enemy's capabilities. We don't fully understand the situation. And we kind of almost stumble into it. And that's mm-hmm. my fear. No, I believe me. This is a conversation we've had quite a bit on this this podcast. Uh, recently, we had another Marine come on uh, and talk. He was a former Intel troop and had this big conversation, mostly about uh, the Navy. Um, and if you haven't listened to it, uh, you probably would find it really interesting. And I think the pair of you would have a really good conversation if we brought you both on at the same time, because uh, that's generally his focus. Uh, but, you know, my fear as well is that we're going to get quote unquote, you know, caught with our pants down essentially by not being able to adapt um, to something happen in, insofar as taking a punch and reacting when we take a punch. And that's my concern, um, you know, not to get too far off the topic, you know, but let's have this discussion, right? What are your thoughts on, you know, carrier strike groups and your thoughts on these, these Dongfang anti-ship ballistic missiles? You know, do you feel that, you know, moving inside these island chains clo- closer to China really is off the, the table with those? And if so, how do we overcome that to be able to project power closer to that region and, and win this fight should that happen? Yeah. <clears throat> so I, I, I think the question really boils down to uh, what kind of Navy do we have? Do we have a blue water Navy or do we have a brown water Navy? Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a distinction. That's an important distinction, because the ships you have with a brown water navy are small, littoral, mm-hmm. fast. Uh, they can pack a punch, but not a catastrophic punch. the The force you have with the blue water navy, like carriers and strike groups, mm-hmm. is you have you can you can del- certainly deliver a, a massive punch. It's still not catastrophic. So you would need to aggregate more of these ships, uh, more of these carrier strike groups in order to have that catastrophic punch at sea. Mm-hmm. But now, um, and, and the great benefit is that you have mobility, but now these uh, intercontinental cruise and ballistic missiles mm-hmm. uh, now come into play because you're in a very mobile area. Or you're, mm-hmm. you're in a very target-rich environment. You're at mm-hmm. sea in the, in, the, in the deep blue water. And there's not enough other traffic around you in order to help mask your presence. It's pretty mm-hmm. clear that you're there. The great news with the brown water Navy is that you're in and amongst local traffic. So targeting becomes extremely hard. Plus, you have terrain masking. You have this terrain that's all around you. Mm-hmm. And that provides some semblance of uh, aid. 
there's only so many ports you can pull into with the carrier strike group. So all these factors come into play. Um, but to really answer your question, <clears throat> I believe the Navy is over-investing in the carrier strike group, the CSG. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a, it's relevant and it's important, but um, I think ultimately that a CSG today is kind of like a battleship during World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, the battleship, we, we built all these capital ships to fight this big war. But very quickly, we realized that this thing, this new thing that was on the horizon in the, in the fast attack carriers, that we were mostly converted uh, battleships early on and then quickly became uh, converted tankers and then quickly became purpose-built carriers uh, mm-hmm. by the end of the war. Um, the reality is, is that we quickly realized that these battleships were not that important. Um, that to, to the success of the fight that these carriers were and that these mm-hmm. fast-moving cruisers were extremely important. Mm-hmm. Uh, famously in the Sulu Sea and the Battle of the Coral Sea, I mean, obviously Coral Sea was a carrier fight and then the Sulu Sea was um, a cruiser fight, uh, a heavy cruiser fight. Um, the reality is, is are we making the same mistake now where mm-hmm. a um, carrier is kind of at the end of its life cycle and is there a new new ship that is uh, around that we should be focusing on mm-hmm. some would argue that that is a submarine for us and if you kind of look at the way the navy is investing they're putting the money where their mouth is putting mm-hmm. all the marbles in the in the, the new columbus class um submarines yeah the navy is also investing in uh, well, you know, I, I do believe they should be investing in the cruisers, which they are. But um, the question is, you know, are these cruisers going to survive in a kind of fifth gen fight? And and those are questions I really can't get into here. But the, the problem with the carrier fight is that you have to be so far out in order to launch safely. Mm-hmm. which now becomes a fuel problem, right? Mm-hmm. Which the Navy's answering by the unmanned uh, wingman uh, right. program, which is refueling program. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the, but, but the other question comes in, like what kind of ordinance could you deliver on carriers that are on, on aircraft that are flying so far out that they're going to be flying into a really saturated A2AD environment? Mm-hmm. Um, so like it, it really becomes like, are, are you, is the tail wagging the dog here? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and it's a fair question that the Navy is wrestling with. And I think they're having an internal uh, kind of fight here, but the reality is that we're all counting on them. Mm-hmm. We're counting on the Navy and I, in my own personal beliefs here, <clears throat> I believe that in this scenario, more is literally better mm-hmm. um, that the Navy is overinvested in these exquisite platforms that they can't risk losing. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we need is simple, cheap, effective vice, the complex, expensive, and the uh, um, dynamic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we really need um, kind of the, I won't say like the old victory ships, but 
<clears throat> we need to flood the zone with really capable uh, seamanship, uh, really integrated uh, weapon systems. And if we're able to do that, then I think that, um, you know, by flooding the zone, we're able to be in places and not have this catastrophic uh, kind of engagement or, you know, all, all, you know, everything's on the table. Because the reality is, I don't know if you want to go to war with a Navy that's untested. Ours and mm -hmm. the Chinese. If you look this, look at this from the Chinese position, it's an untested force. Yeah. And they haven't been uh, um, punched in the face, and they haven't experienced the cost of battle, and they haven't experienced a, a fight where you're trying to fight and battle damage. I mean, mm -hmm. like, like battle damage, and on a ship is catastrophic. Like, yeah. are you still in the fight at that mm -hmm. point? And the question, the answer is mostly no. Right. Uh, you're just trying to get out of there and try not to sink. Mm -hmm. So I, I think, you know, as as the Navy wrestles with these kind of very important questions, it has to it has to contemplate all of this and um, be very careful about the future it chooses. It just may be the kind of future you want to avoid. Mm. You definitely bring up some pretty relevant and scary points. To be honest with you, those are uh, you know it's disconcerting to think about when you consider the our littoral class ships are ones that no one really believes in, and the ones that we are trying to get actively trying to get rid of in favor of something better. You know, um, I wish I could have somebody come on and talk at at length and in depth about submarines because that's something that really interests me because I do also him in that camp of thinking the submarines and our ability to wage submarine warfare is going to make a massive difference, um, especially with some of our allies uh, in the region. But, you know, to me, this, this all seems to be coming to the point where we have to make a decision to change, uh, adapt or die, essentially, is kind of where it seems like it's going. And I feel like we're at that point. And the bureaucracy that you kind of talk about as well on, on social media is, is what's killing all of this. And that's why I think platforms like yours are so important because, like you mentioned before, you see all of these young Marines, and I see it too, I've seen before you know, with airmen, soldiers, they're on their phone. And that's what they're looking at, you know, and you're reaching them at their level, which is exactly what you should be doing. And I think that's why conversations and accounts like yours are so important because you're elevating these issues and reaching them there where they're going to see it. And then hopefully, right, if the, the DOD can fix its uh, retention issues, um, you know, when they become leaders, they can make these decisions as well. But hopefully we have that time to make those decisions because it certainly kind of doesn't seem like we do have that time. And we've reached that point where things have to change. Things must change. Yeah, I, I think you bring up an important point about um, – what what people, whether you're active duty, reserve, uh, National Guard, or thinking about joining or having retired, um, I, would, I would offer to you this, that, uh, and especially to all of your listeners, which uh, obviously is a, a highly intelligent group based on uh, the kind of conversations you guys have had on this platform. Oh, this isn't you. your random Joe just listening in. Uh, sure. Uh, but the reality is that I would not despair because the, although I am bringing up many of these kind of issues, mm -hmm. they are certainly fixable. And 
the, the, the fact is, is that even if none of these things were fixed, I believe we could find a way. Mm-hmm. A, um, unfortunately, I can't tell you who, but a general officer once told me, and I asked him about a very kind of influential, mm. very uh, kind of um, guy is in a key position of leadership right now. I asked him a question about China. And he said the mm-hmm. first thing is that China, the Chinese are not 10 feet tall. Mm-hmm. And uh, they don't have the lessons of war that we have. Mm-hmm. And I agree with him. Um, I also Valid agree points. that, yeah, I also agree that, uh, the Chinese, um, I believe that they don't want war with the United States in my mm-hmm. heart of hearts. I believe that, that they're not a warring society. I believe the government, the CCP has made some st- strategic, uh, errors and assumptions, and this is mm-hmm. causing us to be on a collision course. And I Mm -hmm. believe the United States, you know, uh, should, um, is challenged to deliver its, uh, its message about what it seeks in the future. And, uh, you know, the president has often said that, you know, it's not, the United States doesn't aim to go to war with China. I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think if, Mm -hmm. if I was to sit with my counterpart on the Chinese side, I would tell him like, Hey man, like we got to find a way. Because I, I think war is not good for anyone. You know, mm-hmm. it's not good for anything. For and sure. um, that doesn't mean we're, I'm not willing. Obviously, mm-hmm. you know, as, as a red-blooded American, you know, I, I think if the chips are down here, like that's like that all Americans should should pick a side and our side is the right side. Like mm-hmm. that, that's that's our perspective. Right. Um, but going back to what the average Joe thinks and why it's important we have these uh, conversations is because the more informed you are about like not only warfare and what it means to go to war and the, the historical kind of aspects and the, the gravitas that all of this encompasses, I think you come back with a better feeling about where we currently sit. Mm. And I am often asked about many of the negative aspects about the United States military, about where we currently sit, about our fears and concerns. And these are all like, believe me, adequate questions and I love them. Mm -hmm. Uh, But rarely am I asked, you know, how do you, you know, about the the very kind of strong points that we possess. Mm -hmm. Here's here's an interesting analogy and uh, I'll leave you with here. Okay. so I, I recently uh, completed a, a master's degree in, uh, in British uh, naval history, and uh, part of my dissertation was written on a um, on an island that was similar to Taiwan for the British. It was okay. thousands of miles away. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was really a naval fight. It was the only way to achieve victory there, and it was very close to the enemies. It was like 60 miles or so away from enemy shores, the enemy that mm-hmm. wanted that island. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the British, the, the, the in London, domestic audience was like up in arms, like this is ours, we should have it. Like, like there's no way this should fall into the enemy's hands. And this is during the age of sail, by the way, during mm-hmm. the 1700s. So what's interesting is that the Britain 
lost possession of this island. They were soundly defeated three times. Yeah, wow. three times. And after the final time, they gave up on it. Yeah. And during one of the times they lost this island, the defeat was so bad that it shocked London and the voting or the, the, the domestic audience that Parliament initiated uh, court martial proceedings against the naval admiral that was in charge of the fleet, the task force. Oh, wow. Not only that, but they found him guilty during a year long trial. And his family, his descendants, by the way, are, are trying to clear his name to this day. Oh my gosh. But the, uh, they found him guilty and they shot him on the quarter deck of the ship in, in Plymouth, in, uh, in, excuse me, in Portsmouth. Wow. I've never so, heard of this. Yeah, this was uh, the British uh, effort to gain control of Menorca, and Menorca being part of the Balearic Islands off the coast of Spain. Mm -hmm. And France had easy access to uh, Menorca from its uh, massive fleet headquarters there in the Mediterranean. And the same thing in uh, um, the, the Spanish had access to this island. Mm -hmm. The Spanish were the weaker power, and France was was a stronger power and was e easily able to snatch uh, Menorca away from Britain. The reason why Britain wanted Menorca was because Menorca possesses the world's largest inland natural harbor in the world. Wow. And so Britain wanted this place. You got to look at the history. It's incredible. So Britain okay. fought these wars to maintain the island. And ultimately, they lost it. That's why the only base today is in... Um, Gibraltar uh, during okay. the treaty uh, between Spain and uh, England uh, th this treaty gave possession of two islands to two Spanish islands to England, Gibraltar mm -hmm. and Menorca and um, there was all these conditions that were attached to this treaty but bottom line is, is the only one England possesses to this day is um, is uh, Gibraltar, mm -hmm. but uh, the the reality is is that um, what's lost on the public in 1730, when England lost loses possession of this island for the last time, is that England was about to embark on the greatest maritime era in human history, and literally packs Britannica but crescendo within the next 30 to 50 years. I mean, literally, mm -hmm. uh, um, Admiral Nelson achieves victory in, at Trafalgar in 1805. Mm -hmm. And like, that's the height, one could argue, of British Empire, which would last for over 100 years. Mm -hmm. And it, it wasn't until like Winston Churchill's like, tacit acknowledgement that England had passed the mantle to uh, to, to the United States. Mm -hmm. So even in the loss, as catastrophic as Menorca's loss was to the British like identity, mm -hmm. little did Britain know that it was about to end, enter this era of great maritime power, of greatness economically, of greatness internationally, where literally the Commonwealth would spread and gain in greater influence. Mm that this was just 
this was just a moment in a long history of, of empire. Mm-hmm. And actually, it wasn't even like downward spiral. It was the upward. Right. So are you kind of implying that should something happen between China and the United States with Taiwan, that it could just really be a platform for springboarding the United States even further if if we lose that fight and the sort of face we lose with the rest of the world? So um, the... I think I'm more making a generalization about what history has taught us. Mm-hmm. I think what's important to pull from that entire statement and that storyline there is that one, none of the fights that England had for mm-hmm. Menorca was for all the marbles. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't like every ship, you know, every, uh, you know, <laughs> it felt that way. It mm-hmm. certainly felt, felt that way. But the reality was, is that from the Admiralty in London, it, Menorca was this like, you know, their their view was that this was just a, a moment along the blip, just like England's loss of the United States, uh, the colonies, mm-hmm. was right. like kind of part and parcel to the winning and losing of empires. So I think mature empires have this like grand strate- strategic vision of the future. I certainly believe Taiwan is important as in line with uh, kind of U.S. foreign policy here. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I believe in a free and open Indo-Pacific and all the things that make Taiwan important to us. Um, I just, I think it's important that we have the kind of Navy that Mm -hmm. it isn't that loss or winning in Menorca isn't like, uh, or of Taiwan isn't for all the marbles. You know, mm-hmm. what I, you know what I'm saying? I like it's not mean. so catastrophic that it's like, uh, for instance, I, I give you, a, you know, a, a better example. You know, businesses all the time shut down factories, but very rarely for, you know, for, for, for your average Joe, if you can't afford something and you accidentally overspent, it isn't going to put you out on the street. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Right. Like you should not be in a scenario where a night out could catastrophically, uh, you know, render your future uh, unlivable. Right. Um, so in, in many of the same ways, we should never be in a position where loss or uh, a scenario should, should mortgage our future. Mm-hmm. Essentially, and we have the kind of Navy that could survive that. Mm-hmm. So essentially you're saying the measure of the maturity of an empire is not in all of its wins, but essentially how it can take a punch and keep going, even if that means it loses some, right? You can't win them all. That's right. Right. I mean, I think that that is the most realistic approach you can have to to being an empire, right? Pax Americana, like you said, because it, it is unrealistic. You can't predict everything that's going to happen. You certainly can't control all of the outcomes to be wins. Um, and that's something that I think that every empire will have to face at some point. And because the concept of empire is never going to way, going away, I don't see, you know, some large global rule essentially, right. With one, you know, all this is one nation or something crazy. Um, 
so to, to sit here and say, you know, this maturity of the American empire, quote unquote, is, is that we can take a punch and keep going is definitely a, a hopeful outlook on that without sounding defeatist, I'll say. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan taught us that, mm-hmm. you, know, um, you know, however grotesque the loss was mm-hmm. and the setbacks we experienced there and the pain experienced that mm-hmm. no, we, we should never be in a situation where loss of something should be the loss of everything. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important that we have that kind of vision because mm-hmm. you will begin to build a Navy and a strategy around that. Mm-hmm. I think too, you bring up, uh, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan, just talking about GWAT in general maybe to wrap this up and kind of pull back in some of these comparisons as well is that when when the roman military went to war and it was at the fringes of its empire and came back one of the things that it brought with it was were a lot of slaves and it kind of replaced the middle class uh, worker there and the citizen right from being the person responsible most for economic prosperity and the united states has kind of done something similar where we've outsourced all of our labor essentially and we have we do have slaves from around the world and other countries doing things and creating things for us. Um, and that happened when they returned back from war and found a Roman society run less by a Republic and more by, you know, the elite, um, you know, wealthy class essentially, which is kind of what we have here with a lot of the cor- corporatocracy that we have in the United States. And I think fortunately for us and unfortunately for Rome, I think that we can see that in, Kind of to your point about using a something as a as a punch to come back and rally from. I think that we can use those lessons of the past and essentially see what happened to Rome um, and avoid them as a, as a roadblock in the road to get out of the way or or or, or to where the obstacle is the way. Kind of like what you said, and, and learn from it and be better, be different. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I think that's a powerful statement there because as as americans are kind of waking up to what they're seeing in the media and what they're seeing in news um you know one of the one of the things that romans uh, citizens or roman soldiers and uh, um, centurions uh, kind of experience was that they would return to rome after being decades overseas mm-hmm. uh, and what did all that cost them mm-hmm. uh, well it cost them a lot but they also gain citizenship into uh, to being a, a Roman and they gain land, which was like mm-hmm. inherently valuable. Right. Um, and so the, the Roman soldier was well-respected in Roman society. And it was the easiest way for anybody to become somebody. Mm-hmm. And um, what, what is interesting is that uh, in many of the same kind of ways, uh, the American military has afforded many, many current Americans pathways to kind of the experience of becoming an American and mm-hmm. the exposure of becoming an American to, mm-hmm. to, 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 to Americans. And so I think it's a good thing that we've, we, we, we've become this nation of immigrants and then, you know, we're finding, you know, people to put in uniform wherever we can. Recruiting right now is a, a difficult challenge. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is that it's giving a lot of people a fast track way to the American experience. And mm-hmm. 
I think if you meet somebody on the street who is uh, maybe was born in a different country, but they tell you, but you can you can quickly engage with them and realize, okay, this isn't your average whatever race. Mm-hmm. This is a guy from a different path. And mm-hmm. if you have that kind of military experience, then there's obviously a natural bond there. But I would offer also offer to you that uh, those of us that have served in the military and had these experiences both in Iraq and Afghanistan and throughout the mm-hmm. GWAT, we have a unique perspective of American power that even the political and financial elite do not have. Mm-hmm. And this is a uh, this is a powerful, powerful thing uh, to have that experience and to have that common bond with what is millions and millions of your fellow Americans who have served in uniform. There mm-hmm. is a minimum now within this population group, there's a minimum baseline uh, of capability there. And I think that's a great thing. Uh, and I think the I future looks bright because of that. If we didn't have that, this would be a separate challenge. No, I, I totally agree. And um, yeah, I don't know much how much time you have left. Don't want to keep you if you yeah. need to get going. Yeah, I got to wrap it up here. Cool. One thing I will say is uh, one of the things that when I've had this discussion recently with a friend about some of the comparisons between the United States and, and Rome is that when Rome started in- integrating a lot of the barbarian tribes into its military is kind of when it saw a lot of its decline because you had people that didn't understand what it meant to be a Roman citizen and they didn't they were not bought in on the idea that is Rome, right? And that's something I think that is uniquely different between perhaps the Romans and the United States is that as Americans, we have a very strong identity of of what we think we are and what we know ourselves to be. And joining the military is a very great way to ferment those um, those principles and ideals into somebody and where perhaps the Romans integrated barbarians into its and not calling immigrants barbarians but i'm using that term uh you know the way you would historically yeah. right that um it saw a, a a decrease in their lethality i think that for us if you know using that as a way to increase our, our numbers and then also increase a buy-in into our country as in creating citizens that way i think is would be a good thing whereas it wasn't with with ancient rome my opinion. Yeah, um, I, I think there's a uh, there's a great modern parallel today. The French Foreign Legion mm-hmm. um, does uh, basically, you know, is a, is effectively comprised of mostly foreigners mm-hmm. uh, who don't speak the language, are escaping from a differential past, uh, and are probably not your ideal candidates, frankly, for the military. Sure. Uh, because of all those things. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that would be a non-starter for the U.S. military. What's interesting yeah. is that France has made the French Foreign Legion like a centerpiece of their defense strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, but this isn't the only example. Uh, globally, you have um, in, uh, in Nepal, you have the Gurkhas and mm-hmm. you have the Indian Gurkhas as well. You have uh, Nepalese Gurkhas, you have Indian Gurkhas, which have right. been absorbed into the British military and the Indian military, same thing, and the Pakistani military have these elite units of foreign fighters, effectively, right. is what they are. Right. And they're still with us today. And what's interesting is that uh, I've met many uh, a French foreign legionnaire 
and then I've met many of uh, uh, I know plenty of Gurkhas. I've I've served alongside some, and I've spoken mm-hmm. to many, and and British officers who have led Gurkhas, by the way. Um, and what's interesting is that, uh, you know, it's a um, it, it's a process mm-hmm. to become not just a Gurkha or a Legionnaire. It's mm-hmm. a process to become a French citizen, and the Gurkhas imagine this. A Gurkha's dream is to go, is to become a British citizen. Mm. I mean, that, that's a remarkable aspect of what it means to be right a, a, a soldier. Mm-hmm. And you aspire, like, man, that, that's amazing that people would be willing to put their lives on the line, especially in Afghanistan. One was a recipient of the Victoria Cross for famously mm-hmm. defending his uh, uh, checkpoint against uh, an onslaught. Right. Um, but, but the reality is, is that like, man, we, we live in an era where people want to come to our country and be, become part of our, not only our militaries and all that, mm-hmm. that entails, but become a citizen. And that, that may not be the best route to, to, to having a great nation. And, but I think if you, if done correctly, if done well, done correctly. Mm-hmm. it, it does a, uh, it, 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 it's an additive aspect of uh, your nation. And absolutely, I think um, it we, we we have to be careful as uh, kind of military service members. I, I think you know we've we've learned if you've done enough time in the military that um, who is good and who is weak, uh, mm-hmm. who is strong and who is fast and who is tough mm-hmm. and who is you know any of these things right. is you know you would be you would be uh, walking on very thin ice if you came into a room of random Joes, military mm-hmm. Joes of all walks of life, yeah. of all backgrounds, and you made wide generalizations. Because you yeah. know in your heart of hearts, like when you walk into that room, like you know all that doesn't really matter, right? Mm-mm. Because it, 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 it's a, there's a grinding aspect that shapes you into kind of what you are. Yeah. And, and we all know the kind of tricks of the trade and the, you know, the inside scoop and all the hidden movements of what it means to be in the military. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, you know, it's, I, I often am walking in the rooms of people. I don't know. That is mm-hmm. a hell. I'm about to do this here in the next week. <laughs> and, right. and I, I'm telling you right now, like I've learned over the course of 20 years, um, some of the toughest fighters I've ever met uh, were people unexpected, you know, mm-hmm. it, was, it was an unexpected assumption on my part. And then mm-hmm. too, I remember uh, I was, I served in Ramadi with um, these Iraqi soldiers and I've had these generalizations about Iraqi soldiers, but I was mm-hmm. serving with a group of Peshmergas. Mm-hmm. And these dudes had been at war for decades. Yeah. And, these guys were tougher than woodpecker lips, man. Just like <laughs> hardcore, dude. Hardcore. Love it. Love it. And um, one guy that I was serving with was a damn near cancer patient for two years. And not even like a complaint. Like this dude was wow. dying. And wow. just like guns up, ready to go. Let's let's hit it on patrol. Didn't matter. Anytime, any day. And, uh, Epic. 
Yeah, just like, holy cow, man. So, I, you know, I, I think as we are exposed around the world, I, I think we're going to find that, um, you know, there's, there's all these unknowns, man. And that's one of the things I love about this conversation is that I've learned from you and hopefully your listeners have kind of learned more about me and my position and my thoughts. Yeah. But uh, I appreciate your time. No, thank you for coming on. And I think that's a great way to wrap it up because you definitely nutshelled some of the best things about being in the military and then in turn kind of highlighted a lot of the strengths that our military has. And um, when you're in the military, like you said, those things in your background, they don't matter. It's, it's who you are left to right, who's on your left and right. That matters and that's what's most important. So, um, you know, thank you so much for coming on with me. Julian, also perfect name to talk about Rome, right? You have a yeah. very Roman name. So, but yeah, right. no, thank you so thank you so much for coming on. Uh, you know, good luck to you. I would love to talk to you again and uh, definitely stay in touch on social media, man. Yeah, you got it. Thanks. What's going on, Fire fans? I Came With Fire podcast is sponsored by Red Clover Coffee and Sheep's Clothing, LLC. Red Clover Coffee is a veteran-owned company with small batch roasted coffees, and they just happen to donate to some pretty awesome charities. Whether you're into specialty flavored coffees, single source coffees, or having a really cool coffee mug and some badass slaps, Red Clover has you covered. You can order ground, whole bean, or even coffee pods and get it all at 10% off your entire purchase using coupon code CAMEWITHFIRE. Again, that's 10% off your entire purchase using our coupon code CAMEWITHFIRE. I personally love their Blueberry Invasion and African Roast. That Blueberry Invasion hits the spot. Head over and get yourself some awesome coffee and support us by supporting our sponsor. I Came With Fire podcast is also sponsored by Sheep's Clothing, LLC. Sheep's Clothing, LLC is a unifying banner for all violent arts, disciplines, professions, and survivors of violent circumstances. Redefine violence. Both Zach and I being survivors of violent circumstances and LEOs in the military, we are especially excited to be able to offer you 10% off your entire purchase with coupon code FIRE10 at checkout. Whether you're looking for an awesome t-shirt, hats, slaps, flags, or MMA gear, they've got you covered. Me personally, I love my snapback with the leather patch surrounded by God's flannel. If you know, you know. That's coupon code FIRE10. F-I-R-E-1-0 at checkout for 10% off your entire purchase. Thank you all so much for supporting this podcast. And if you should feel compelled, treat yourself by supporting our sponsors as well. They truly make a difference for us. Now let's make a difference for them. See you on the next show.